here today with Emma Shaw. Hi, Emma. How are you? Hi, uh, I'm good. Thank you, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Good, good. And thanks very much for coming on this podcast. I know You're that we, we've got a shared interest in our fascination with training or learning and development stuff that that's really about a mindset. Sh- a mind. <laughs> I told you it's difficult <laughs> to say. Mindset <laughs> shift. Correct. <laughs> Be yeah. careful with that one. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I just I just noticed that. I thought it was quite easy. I should have practiced more. But uh, mindset shift. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to just the simple acquisition of knowledge or skills. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we both talked about our love of that. Do you want to just tell people why you are most interested in that kind of side of learning and development? Um, I guess probably through experience, really, of my 15-year learning and development career, I've done a lot of different aspects of learning. So everything from induction to systems to process to behavioral modules and you know everything in between compliance the whole lot and the the thing that I always gravitate towards is is the real mindset stuff and the behavioral change stuff and that's that's the space I've always been really comfortable with and what I've realized over the years is that whatever your training whatever learning is happening there should always be a behavioral or attitudinal aspect to it because otherwise the performance element and the you know the impact is is only going to be at best half measures I guess. So even if we're just acquiring something that just at the face of it looks like knowledge of a new process and perhaps the skill communication skill to engage with a customer around that new process Mm. you're still saying that we need to be thinking mind shift mind shift mind shift (laughs) (laughs) it's just not that hard I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) <laughs> you've you've got stuck on it now and it's not going to go away <laughs> I, I need a mindset shift on being able to say this I think you do but, so if, even something really simple like that where it might just be a new customer process so there's a, a little bit of skill yeah. needed uh, a little bit of knowledge to make sure you're comfortable with it but even there you're saying we need to at least be thinking what's the attitude angle absolutely right yeah that's spot on because I think it's easy to look at something like uh, you know a new process for example or let's say you've got um, a lot of my experience in early days is in telecoms and we would do a quarterly release of new tariffs and, and products and things like that and it's very easy just to you know throw out the knowledge and tell people how to make things happen on the systems and so on but actually there's there's a whole load of other stuff around that that will that will enable or not the success of that rollout or that process or whatever it might be so you know as you say things like communication aspects um or you know a passion for customer focus or taking accountability or right first time or whatever it might be they're all behavioral and attitudinal aspects yeah it's it, it's a really good point i think in the two bits of L&D where I most specialize they're around change management and leadership development they're my two favorites yeah. and they're mm-hmm. my two favorites exactly because the the interesting bit is all around the mindset my, the, my, <laughs> <laughs> the mindset oh. shift <laughs> I have to think of a new word here attitude we'll, bit the, we'll just that, say mind shift <laughs> my, oh, my, oh yeah okay maybe Let's that's what that. I'm trying to say so the interesting <laughs> bit is around the mind shift Yes. Um, I guess that's why I've always been drawn to those and find those most fascinating. But one of my yeah. very first jobs in professional L&D, as opposed to just teaching people English or something like that, was a new computer pro- system 
which was a whole new database approach to the way cargo was managed within an airline. And previously, the only way the airlines passed information to each other about the way cargo or what cargo was on the plane was when it landed, they took a piece of paper off the side of the, the thing and it had a list of what was supposed to be on the plane. Right. So I was speaking to this, and, and this this guy who worked in the warehouse at Newark Airport came up to the customer service team and said, can you print out what's what's on the next plane? Because his mindset was, this is a customer service job because they received the email and the London flight would have emailed through. Yeah. So they could get advance warning. And I said, no, 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 you can do that yourself now. This is This is an operations issue. And I sort of dragged him into the room and I said, look, look, just come to the database here, you know, bang the info in, there you go, boom. You could, we didn't say boom in those days, but there you go. We you can see what's on the plane, and his he just sort of went, "All right, thanks for printing that for me," and walked away. Next day, he went back to customer service and said, okay. "Because what I hadn't done is I hadn't considered the mindset mind shift set yeah. thing. Um, yeah. All I thought about was here's the skills you need to do it, but his yeah. mindset was I work in the warehouse when I need a list, I go to the office. That's it, and it and it's you know it's habits it." It's all of those things that come into that. That's, and that's a great example of, of someone who, you know, who's got into that habit or made assumptions about what, you know, what roles they play and what roles other people play and what, you know, responsibility they have to take for that. Sometimes you have to kind of dig into that a little bit and figure out what their motivations are, perhaps, and, you know, what, what would actually be in it for them in terms of making that mindset shift uh, towards taking that responsibility. Because if there's no, if there's no particular reason why they would you know if they don't see the re- the benefit of that to themselves because it's working okay as it is you know it's just about all right then why would they change yeah it's a good point oh why do you think this is why are we sort of hardwired to think it to, to be that way that's a good question um what to to sort of um think in in habits or not take responsibility yeah you mentioned things. well not necessarily not take responsibility but you mentioned a couple of words there you mentioned habits you mentioned assumptions mm. and the point of my rather overlong story about <laughs> the cargo thingy was that he it wasn't that he was resisting change in any way it was just that he had certain habits certain thoughts certain assumptions i do this they do that yeah and it just didn't seem like a rational move to him Mm. for him to take responsibility for that part of the 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 job yeah but i i'm just interested what why why is that even an issue why can't i just tell him you do it now and then that just feels completely natural why are we kind of stuck in these ruts it's a it's a good point and i suppose that that's you know down to like you say our hard wiring really if we if we do something enough times then it becomes a habit and that's not just the physical things that's the thinking stuff as well so you know if we we're constantly thinking oh, that's not our job, somebody else does that. And that's reinforced by it works perfectly okay as it is. And, I, you know, I can't see any particular pull towards a different direction. Then um, I suppose that there's, you know, there doesn't seem like any reason to change. So we're reinforcing constantly by repeating that process and repeating that thinking. And, and thinking is a habit and behaviours are a habit. And, it, and that's perhaps something that, if if process and systems training is done just two dimensionally that's the bit we forget that we have to change our thinking habits as well it's that thing that we have to wiggle people out of i guess and understand that if there is if we do something differently we'll get something better out of it but 
that that takes a responsibility doesn't it so if somebody you know if, if you were to say some to somebody right that thing you've been doing that you've been passing on to somebody else all this time we now want you to do it you know if the, if they don't see any reason to do that then they're going to just think oh well that's more work for me why would I bother doing that yeah it just sounds like more work as soon as you said that I thought yeah that just sounds like more work mm. I think if it's something as superficial as can you print this now because it's an operational report as opposed yeah. to before where you just didn't have the physical tools never mind the knowledge or the skill to do it there's a relatively straightforward argument yeah but if it's something more if it's something deeper that i believe about myself Mm. that's been ingrained for years it might be something around my limits my i don't think i'm a leader or i don't think i'm a people person yeah or i don't think i'm clever enough or whatever it might be those kind of limits yeah they're even more deeply ingrained and hardwired much they more are. so than get a report from here rather than there, or you do it rather than they do it. Yeah, that's very true. That you know the whole limiting beliefs thing is is a, a really interesting one. And the more we operate from those beliefs, the more we reinforce the beliefs themselves because we're you know we're going through this process of something happening. We respond to it in some way. We have our thoughts and feelings and emotions about them. We behave in a certain way that has a certain outcome. And that that just keeps going round and round in circles. So those beliefs get more and more entrenched, more and more hardwired, and more and more difficult to wiggle people out of. There, there is this idea of a fixed mindset, isn't there? And this and the neuroplasticity yeah. argument that actually, yeah, people that have this fixed mindset that believe, I suppose, to join these two these two points up, they believe that those neural pathways are kind of stuck. So this is my habit, this is who I am, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. Yeah. So, for example, I have a very firm self-limiting belief that I cannot play a musical instrument, despite, right. I was going to say despite a lot of effort, but that's, that's not quite true. <laughs> have you tried the triangle? Uh, I haven't, actually. I could probably do <laughs> that one. Maybe you should but start there. <laughs> might get bored quite quickly on that one. But years, years and years of trying, but I don't try very hard. This is the real reason, of course, and I know this, is the fact that I don't apply myself properly and I certainly don't have any kind of expert tuition. It's just me trying to do it by watching stuff on YouTube and then not doing right. and thinking, oh, I can't do this too hard. I'll do something else. But so, isn't it interesting that actually in even within that, there's a probably a limiting belief where you, you, you know, you've just made a statement, I don't apply myself properly. And that in itself is a belief, isn't it? But but actually, probably the crux of that is what the reward you'll get for applying yourself properly is maybe not something compelling enough in that situation for you to actually do the applying. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I haven't quite worked this out because I I remember when I was a when when I was a kid, I bought a remote guitar tutor pack, something that came yeah. in like a few tapes in those days. And one of the first exercises, you had to do this scale that was quite far up the fretboard. It's around the sort of 10th and 12th frets. And I could yeah. not do this damn scale, even though it looked really easy written out. But I couldn't do the bloody thing. But I practiced it every day for a few days. And I thought, oh, I'm going to give up. I just can't do it. I am incapable of playing the guitar. I'll just try once more. And I could do it. Still, oh, but I still gave up. Because my brain okay. had already decided you can't do it. So actually, you were on the precipice i guess of i was of what what you needed to you know the belief you needed to have because you'd let go of the limiting belief and you were potentially about to or your mind at least was giving you an opportunity to form a new belief but maybe because you weren't you know Jimi hendrix straight away it just felt too difficult yeah i don't know what it was it, it what really struck me was the fact that i could do it 
and I'd still given yeah. up, but, but because I'd already made the mental shift, the mind shift, yeah. as we're calling it now, <laughs> because we'd already made, I'd already made that shift. I thought, okay, this isn't for me. I can't do it. Even yeah. though right in front of me, I had, I had just done it and I'd yeah. done it fairly competently to the point where I, I, there was an obvious progress in right in yeah. front of my eyes, in front of my ears, whatever. And, and yet I'd made that mental shift and therefore I just couldn't, I couldn't get myself back into it for some reason. And that was it. That was the kind of, you know, put it down for a couple of years until I tried again. That's really interesting. It's a bit like that. Um, you, like you say, you'd, you'd already made that decision. And therefore, the good results that you were already seeing weren't, you know, obvious enough to you for you, for you to let go of that decision that you'd made. It makes me think about that, um, you know, the did you spot the gorilla experiment? I have no idea that what you're talking about now. <laughs> So um, it it was sort of popularised a bit more by um, Darren Brown, actually, in one of his shows. He did a, a version of it. But there was a guy, I can't remember who it was, that did the experiment. But it's been written about a number of times where they had um, they had a group of people watching a video of some kind with they were on the video. There were teams of people playing basketball or something like that. And they primed them to look for certain things like watch how many passes the red team make or whatever it may be they gave them instructions for the audience to to take note of and at the end of it they asked them did you spot the gorilla and most people said what gorilla and apparently there was somebody in a gorilla suit that just walks across the screen at some point i haven't actually seen uh the the original video yeah yeah and nobody spotted it because they were primed to see the thing they were told to see and maybe that's what kind of happened in your head you'd you were primed or primed yourself to to see the I can't do this, and when you could do it, your brain discounted that completely. It may it may be. I I, I do remember that experiment. Now you mention it. it, it's a really interesting way of illustrating that point that mm. we we see what we're primed to see, and yeah. a lot of the time that's not going to be someone like Darren Brown externally passing your instructions to look for something. Of course, it's going to be <laughs> an internal process of here's here's yet more proof of my inability to do this yeah. oh, oh exactly. here's proof of my ability to do it and which may be equally inaccurate of course yeah yeah and it's you know when you put that into a corporate environment you know that can that can have huge impacts on whether that business achieves what it needs to achieve um, and if you don't tap into that within any learning re- uh, interactions or whatever else it may be from a performance and development perspective then you're going to get very limited results. So, you know, you have to figure out how to unleash that in people. But the difficulty with that is, from a consultant's point of view, if somebody brought me in to do a project of some kind that involves some behavioural or attitudinal change or mindset shift, they're going to want to see that straight away. But that doesn't always happen overnight for people. It's a, you know, it's a very personal thing you know, that transition can sometimes take years. For me, it took years. You know, I, I massively changed my mindset from a negative one to a to a positive one. And it took me a good 10 years or more to do it. Yeah. And it, it's never one moment, is it? It's not like I was entirely in this camp, then entirely in that camp. And it was just one key moment. It's an yeah. accumulation of m- minor interventions over a longish yeah. period of time. And of course, exactly. this makes this whole thing really difficult to measure. Yeah. effectively which is a different yeah. issue which we'll maybe get on to 
But let's just pause there for a second because we've we've really been talking about what the issue is here. So the issue is kind of we've all got to some extent a fixed mindset, even if we are fairly open-minded, even if we buy the neuroplasticity argument, we're mm. still all to some extent got fixed mindsets. We've all got habits. We all yeah. kind of make tons of assumptions. Some of these come from childhood and sort of feed into our values and things like that. Yeah. And some of these are sort of kind of more superficial, more behavioural, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And and I. You know, I heard the, a few weeks ago that apparently we have 65,000 thoughts a day. Really? And yeah, Blimey. apparently. I don't know who's counted those. No. <laughs> and how. It's quite but... a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it is maybe quite just a lot, did it yeah. for a minute and then just multiplied. Yeah, maybe. That's what Who I do. knows? I'm, that, I'm not Close that enough. way inclined <laughs> to, to figure that out. But um, it's going to be a lot of thoughts, I guess. And the trick to changing mindset shift or one of the keys to it is that you have to become conscious of your thoughts and almost stop them in their tracks and decide on a different path now if you're having that many thoughts every day there's no way you can be conscious of all of those thoughts so you have to teach people how to or people you know have to learn at least to try and listen to some of them and understand what's at the core of them and what the belief is underneath all of that and then try and find evidence to back up the fact that there may be a new belief out there uh, that they could adopt so it's it's a very complex thing that you know I'm obviously very oversimplifying here um but to monitor one's thinking and one's mindset is actually it's not it's not the easiest thing to do no it's not is it you're getting into the you get into mindfulness territory now, yeah. And mm. uh, immediately, as soon as you start talking about something like mindfulness, which sounds like a bit of a fad or a buzzword to a lot of people, you're going to hit some people that are going to immediately ears prick up and think that sounds interesting. I want to explore yeah. that, which mm. is kind of how I feel about stuff like that. Yeah. But then there will Same. be a lot of people who will say, mm, "Okay, you, you're immediately putting them off because it just sounds like mumbo jumbo." Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting one because it has actually there, there's been a lot obviously a huge amount of research around mindfulness and positivity and so on. And there was there was something I heard about a number of years ago where they there was an experiment done with three groups of people, and one group of people were were primed and taught how to think negatively, and you know to 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 have sort of all of the things that go around that with negative behavior etc and the second group were taught to think positively and encouraged to constantly you know think positive thoughts and then the third group were uh, shown how to be mindful instead so neither think negative nor positive just to be present in the moment and be conscious of of how they were thinking and they were they were given lots and lots of different tests sort of psychometric stuff and and feedback and physical health based stuff and all of that those kind of things uh, you can tell I'm a scientist can't you and then at the end of it they they measured the the impacts and what they found was that obviously the negative people were struggling but interestingly enough out of the positive and the mindfulness groups the mindfulness uh, group were much more successful in terms of the health benefits and the impacts they'd had on other people and I believe they also measured their sort of happiness levels and lots and lots of other things that are, you know, really life critical. Uh, but generally, they were significantly more successful and, and had much higher well-being than the people that were forced to constantly try and think positively. Wow. So that's really interesting. Mm. 
I'll have to properly look that up and get the details on it because it's all hazy in my mind now. But I remember reading it and thinking that is really quite fascinating because, you know, I've spent many, many years helping people to be more positive and there's a huge amount of validity in that. But actually, maybe we're we're trying to force people down a channel that isn't, you know, all that easy and, and not that helpful. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, please do dig it out and send me the link. And yeah, I'll put, well. it on the, I'll put it on the site. It it also feels like it partly links to Stephen Covey, doesn't it? You know, his first mm. habit was very much about be proactive. And by that, yes. he was talking about that, that gap between stimulus and response. Yeah. In other words, what he might say now is be mindful. Yeah. Because what he meant was be aware of your actions. Don't just, don't just do triggered actions. Yes. Take control of that moment and be mindful of what you do next and what you say next. Absolutely, Bob. On and Covey circles are something that I use an awful lot in these, you know, in in behavioural based trainings. That, that yeah, circle of influence, circle of concern. Yeah, it's a really good model that actually. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's that you know bringing that awareness to, uh, just as you say, you know, the the difference between a reaction and a response is very different, and it is the the difference is becoming conscious of what's happening in your head and what what you be, how that's dictating your behaviour and what impact that behaviour has on people around you and you know the then the feedback process that comes comes back to you to again tap into those whatever those beliefs are that you've got one, one of my favorite theories when it comes to human interaction is around transactional analysis yeah we have actually done a bit of a, a series of this fact we did get very far with the series we've only done two of them i think with uh, <laughs> with gary platt we, we will continue that series because it's a fascinating subject transactional yeah, I analysis love, i love transactional analysis well i know because yeah. we, we spoke about this before when we were talking about this before we started recording so what's the link from what we've been talking about what is the link to transactional analysis or, or how can ta knowledge help us understand this better well i think probably one of the 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 key things that springs to mind for me on that is that the you've got the whole child, parent and adult states. And certainly, you know, the way I've been taught TA is that the best way to change your mindset is to be in adult state. And because you're not reacting as you would do when you're in child state, you know, in that emotional state or in your parent state where, you you know, you're perhaps doing an overprotective thing or whatever it may be that be- parent type behavior if you step into that adult mode what you're doing is you're engaging your rational brain you're thinking you're becoming conscious of what's happening in your mind and therefore can choose a behavior and that then again feeds back to uh, creating and reinforcing a new belief and that that's a particularly powerful thing when you think about how you help other people to make a mindset shift as well. So I suppose from a, a facilitator's point of view, um, what I really want to do in, in the classroom is to to help to you know create mechanisms that allow people to step into that adult state so that they can become more conscious and more thoughtful and more responsive as opposed to reactive. Yeah, and help I mean just telling people that is really helpful, isn't it? Just making yeah, them aware absolutely. that naturally interactions will we will naturally feel ourselves being pushed into child or parent just by yes. the circumstances and by our own habits and everything else. And that yeah. stepping into adult thing is sometimes has to be conscious effort or mindful effort to repeat yeah. the same word. And essentially what you're doing then is it's, it's called the executive function, isn't it? Because that's the one where you mm. have 
I mean, in, you can make that rational executive decision about how to behave and how to respond. Yeah, that's it. And it, it's, it, it is a much more powerful state to, to be in if you want to make change. I did some learning with a, a bit a, an organisation last year with some guys from a the where like warehouse and transport part of the business, and we did a lot on transactional analysis, and that was really quite interesting because, um, you know, when you actually break it down and you know you get you sort of get past all the jargon and all of that stuff and get and get through to what it really means, it really the the level of self awareness that suddenly happened within the space of an hour or two of us working with that that theory it, it was really quite impressive to observe and i then after the training event that i was running where that was part of the content i was getting people coming back to me quite regularly saying oh we you know we've just told what's his name in the in the whatever team that he's behaving like a child and all that you know i'd get people coming to me with reports of how people had behaved and they'd, they'd stopped some there were a couple of people one in particular who absolutely put his hand up and said yeah I behave like a child all the time and and it that light bulb moment was really visible and he would call himself out on it a number of times and you know it doesn't mean that necessarily they're going to change straight away but just to raise that level of awareness is is a massive first step if you can give people an environment where they're able to learn from that then that's just going to start reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing and allowing for a new kind of behaviour and a new kind of thinking to to take place. With transactional analysis, and, and, and we're talking about transactional analysis at a fairly simple level, really just the parent-adult-child mm. principle. So just the ego states level of the theories, we're not going into it in massive depth here. Yeah. And even just making people aware of that, we've got a really useful tool there that they can start thinking about mindfulness or if that's the right word to call it, just that trying to break the habit just by not being pushed into that triggered response, but just the Stephen Covey yeah. thing, the take the take the being proactive, just the taking the pause, think about it, choose the rational decision. So we've got one thing there. We can talk to people about that part of TA. Yeah. What else can we do in order to really get mindset change? Well, I think one of the things that that I'm always really thinking about when you know if I'm working with clients or if there's a possibility of me working with a client is to actually look at the culture that's in place because it's all well and good asking your people to behave differently or to think differently or to do something differently but if the if the culture itself or the embedding of that learning isn't going to happen or it's in some way a mismatch then you're not giving people the environment in which to change those habits and really practice their learning. So, you know, we've we've touched on this concept that quite often businesses will want to see a change really quickly. And you might have a, you know, a start date and an end date for a particular project where you might bring a consultant like me in, for example. And that's, you know, one thing to bear in mind that sometimes it's a much more complex process than that, depending on what it is. But if if a business is asking people to do something that's incongruent with how the rest of the business is behaving or what their values are or it's not fully aligned in then you're going to have you're going to hit a brick wall and it, interestingly interestingly enough i was listening to your podcast with Gary Palat the other day that was about competencies oh, yeah. and when they're yeah. used well and when they're not used well 
And I think this absolutely falls into this. You know, if you've got a competency framework that's actually valuable and it's part of the fabric and the DNA of how a business behaves, then you're much more likely to get a shift towards that direction if you, you know, align that all together. So a mindset shift within an organization has to be really embedded in in lots of different aspects and at lots of different levels then you know it's you can't just hold a workshop and expect people to do what you need them to do if if you're not doing all the other good things around it to support that new behavior now, i think that's that's a really good point and it that comes back to a lot of change management thinking doesn't it about the yeah. embedding the, the relevant behaviors and i think at organizational level that's absolutely key the way that yeah. performance is measured uh, articulated the way it's rewarded uh, recognized or, or the way it's kind of punished if that's the right word i don't know yeah. if it's the right word at least managed anyway yes that all has right. to be in line yeah and you know when i've been in permanent roles or had proper jobs as i like to call it um as opposed to being a freelancer the um i've been you know i've had lots of different experiences of that i was quite lucky when i when i first started my L D career um i worked i worked for o2 and they had um, a, a really good performance and development framework at the time. I don't know what it's like now, but we were very much encouraged to behave in, you know, again, in, in adherence to the values, I guess, the four very simple values that we had at the time, which were bold, open, clear, and trusted. And I can reel those off at any moment because it was absolutely, you know, ingrained in us in a really positive way. And I don't think I realized at the time how good they were at doing that. So we were constantly working um, to those values and the competencies that we were that were that were set out and we were we did that just as part of our role every single day and we were constantly on the lookout for examples that would demonstrate that we had applied those values that we'd, we'd behaved in certain ways and it was just part of what we did so it wasn't something that we would have to do you know in a monthly one-to-one or an annual appraisal where we'd have to get you know suddenly panic and think oh my god I've got to gather a load of evidence just to prove that I've been bold open clear and trusted you know we just did that all the time and looking back I'm trying to figure out how they actually did that but it was just part of the culture and it was really quite powerful and then when I've been in other roles since then and you know, on some occasions they've had no competency framework, no values. No one knew whether there was even a, you know, a vision or a mission for the for the organisation. As far as I knew, um, I I was just being targeted on turning up most days, and um, you yeah, know, breaking anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, trying not to swear too much at customers and things like that. You know, and it's pretty high bar then. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been, you know, at both extremes of that. And I've also been in businesses where they've tried to put in, you know, a framework or they've tried to get a behavioral or mindset shift, but that, you know, they've not, they're not quite getting it right because it's not in all the levels and it's not embedded and, and it, you know, the, the mechanisms in place to support that just aren't, aren't there. Yeah. And I think people underestimate the importance of management in this as well. Yes, leadership is so glamorous. Everyone bangs on about that, and oh, go get the vision, and that's all yeah. true. You have to do all of that, and the leaders have to sort of lay the law down to some extent and say, "This is where we're going, and this is, you know, the, this stuff's going to happen." Yeah. But there is something around the managers adopting that positively, not being cynics, and genuinely trying to deliver to the spirit of it, 
and in yes. modeling that, but encouraging their teams to do that as well and, and yeah. pulling them to account when they're not. Absolutely right. And it, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I know you've done a few podcasts with Christina Gadd and something she talks about a lot is that one of the key reasons why learning doesn't land or it doesn't go any further than the training event itself is because of line manager or lack of line manager take up. Absolutely, yeah. And that's so key. You know, it has to, it can't be a one-time event. It can't be just a, you know, a, a, a point in time where people, you know, get a bit of a time out from the job because they're in a workshop you know it has to be part of the fabric of everything yeah no i mean chris is absolutely right on this yeah and and i don't always agree with chris but um but she is usually right she's a bit wacky sometimes (laughs) yeah i usually agree with her after don't know because she's very convincing she is um but she's absolutely right on this that the role of the line manager is absolutely vital it it really is uh, to get any kind of culture change or team change even at team level You've got yeah. to have the manager in, you know, very much buying in. And, and as I said, holding people to account and not being a cynic. That's it. And role modeling, you know, and I've role modeling, lots, of, yeah. lots of managers who've said, you know, you have to behave in a certain way and do certain things, but they don't do it themselves. And, you you know, you could easily call them to account if you wanted to, because they're not, they're just not role modeling what, what them what they're telling you to role model. So, you know, just to perhaps simplify it a little bit too much. You know, if you're a parent and you want your your child to behave well, but then you're doing the complete opposite, then that's what you're going to learn, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I'm I'm doing wrong. One of the many things I'm doing wrong as a parent is that as well. <laughs> but um, it, no, it's absolutely true that the role modelling of it and the coaching of it and the coaching the team, the sort of drawing attention to it, the the yeah. feed the feedback that's not necessarily within a performance appraisal. The feedback mm. that's just more informal, that's just around, it has to be referencing these points. Yeah. Just to sort definitely. of bring it to life and say, oh, that's a brilliant example of bold. Well done. I love the way you dealt with that customer. Absolutely. Here's right. where you got that bold thing bang on. Well yeah. done. Boom. That kind of stuff that's just a bit informal <laughs> and it's just passing, but you're just drawing attention to it and you're just bringing it yeah. to life. I think that's key. Yeah. yeah you, that's absolutely right. It's, and I like the fact that you, you know, you touched on this sort of informal conversation thing because. You know, that's something that I've, I suppose, been challenged with over the years with businesses that I've worked in, that people often see a performance development, performance and development framework as a, you know, a burden or a thing that they've got to do or a tick box or whatever. And if it's done wrong, then that's absolutely what it'll do. Um, But if if there are, if it's a continuous two-way conversation, then it's an extremely helpful thing to have, you know, if it's done in the right way. There's an awful lot of people out there now who are, or, you know, perhaps a, a few people who are starting to question the, you know, this the traditional process of performance and development frameworks and, you know, the annual appraisal and the, all the oh, rest God, of it. Oh, God, yeah, hate it. Yeah, but but actually that's probably because of all the people out there who are doing it wrong. So if it's, you know, if it is an ongoing conversation and it's used to facilitate that really healthy, mindful process, then it can it can really release the potential in people. And that's what it's meant to do, surely. Yeah, that's what it's meant to do. I agree with that. It's not what it always (laughs) does, though, is it? But I mean, again, I, I think if you've got really good managers that buy into it, then the the quality of the performance tools are kind of less important. Because the yeah. manager will make it work. Because it's the, the yeah. key thing is is the relationship. It's about a relationship 
between yeah. the manager and the the team member. That's Definitely. what it's about, and the tool is just there to try and facilitate that. It's it's not about the the tool itself. So a great yeah. manager will still do a great job despite having a fairly crappy system that they have to go through. Um, and a great system won't make a good manager won't make a bad manager into a good manager either. So, but yeah, we've talked about this at the sort of organisational level. This mindset shift. And we talked about some of the change management things there. We talked about this at the team level and the absolute vital role of the line manager. I mean, that's kind of, in my view, that's 99% of it at the team level. Mm-hmm. Let's just go back down to the individual level. Okay. We're dealing with individuals in a room. We're, maybe we've talked about transactional analysis. We've talked about mindfulness. What other things can we do as facilitators in a room to encourage people to maybe snap out of some self-limiting beliefs or take some of the first steps that they need to get this mindset shift? I suppose one of the things that I found quite, well, very impactful when I'm I'm running these kinds of trainings is being real and demonstrating that, you know, I get it. I'm, I'm a human being. I'm fallible. I've been through all this stuff. I still make mistakes now. And that I've been through that, that transition in terms of changing my mindset and, and I'm constantly a work in progress. I think authenticity and relatability, you know, is is a huge thing for people because what you don't want or is what's perhaps less effective, effective is if you've got perfect trainer extraordinaire at the front of the class who can do no wrong and is, you know, a perfect robotic form of what you're meant to be. And you have to make those emotional connections with people. And that, you know, that's that's an elusive thing because you've got to figure out how you do that. And that's very much down to your personality and, and, and allowing that to come out as a facilitator so that people can connect with you as a human being. Right. Um, so I think I think that makes a big a big difference. So so the first part of this is about the authenticity, being that authentic facilitator. Yeah. Not trying to pretend you're something you're not as this perfect polished, uh, uh, you know, the sort of final article that they should be exactly. aspiring to be. But actually, which which uh, kind of sounds obvious when you say it out loud. But because if you come from a background of teaching, that yeah. is kind of the teacher-pupil relationship where the teacher yeah. is beyond reproach. And you are essentially aiming to have the same level of knowledge or the same level of skill as the teacher. So it, it's, yeah. it, it's, not, it, it's a point worth making. That the the facilitator is there as an authentic person, and as as you quite rightly say, that they're a role model, but they're also being honest about their fallibility. Yeah, exactly. I, that's always worked for me, anyway. And you know, having been trained by the perfect version, who you know, you sort of you couldn't fault them at all, and it's almost like they've switched on a program. Um, that's all nice sometimes, but it can be a bit scary and a bit daunting and sort of, you know, a bit off-putting actually sometimes. So I just, you know, I'm I, one of the things that I've just found over the years is that I'm more successful in a learning interaction when I'm myself. People just, people tell you all sorts of things and they, you know, they'll they'll tell the whole group quite personal things about themselves if they feel like they're in an environment where they're comfortable and they're allowed to be themselves. Yeah. Um, and that can create some huge learnings for themselves and everybody around them, you know, to learn off each other and be in that safe environment where you're allowed to make mistakes and you're allowed to 
not be perfect and you're you know you're allowed to share things and I think that you know that leads into perhaps one of the other things we can do as facilitators which is to allow people to to see the benefit of doing these things for their whole lives but what I often talk about if I if I'm running something to do with let's say change or customer excellence or communication or resilience or whatever it may be and all obviously focus within the workplace what I often talk about is the fact that these are real life skills and it can have huge you know if you learn how to do these things in the workplace it will naturally help you within your personal life as well so an example I've got from a client I was working with last year is a guy that came to me after I'd run a change session and he said I've really thought about what you've said and and I've realized how I behave at home with with my my partner and my kids is is not always great and I'm, I'm actually making life more difficult for myself and for them by just being you know really grumpy about things and not controlling my behavior not being conscious of what I'm doing and I've really tried to, you know, make a huge effort to change how I do those things. And it's had a huge impact on us as a family. So if wow. you can get into into that level with people and help them understand that these skills, this mindset shift benefits their whole lives and not just their working lives, then that can really be a catalyst for getting people to see the the point of going in that direction. That's a really good point. So you're adding value to the learning there for yeah. the whole the whole as you say the whole life I can't think of a better way of saying it and with what you were saying before about the authenticity of the facilitator I think yeah. some some facilitators and I've seen this in things is they seem to think their role is to impress the group as much as possible <laughs> with their yeah. vast amount of knowledge yeah. and as you say it just appears daunting and I've seen people yeah. walk out of sessions feeling like I will never get this I'll never know this this is just yeah. the same. I could never be at the same level as that facilitator person. And yeah. I thought, my God, all this person's done is create dependency. That's all they've done. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I never want anyone to walk out of one of my sessions feeling like that. What I would like them to walk out I wasn't out talking about you, Emma. Of, of course not. Maybe in the old days. <laughs> I'm less impressive now. Um, <laughs> but what, you know, what I'd prefer is for people to walk out thinking, well, actually yeah I can give this a go and I don't have to do it perfectly I can I can try stuff and if it doesn't go well then I've been given you know an idea on how how I can self-reflect on that and celebrate what I did well but also think about what I can do differently next time and just keep trying and every every single time I get into that situation I'll do it better and I'll learn something new but just to have that desire to actually try stuff out that's a huge amount to you know to to achieve yeah. out of a session well yeah the last thing you want is somebody walking out thinking i can't do this i mean that's yeah. really just seems like so counterproductive oh yeah all you've definitely. done is you just you know you've just made people think oh my god you know this is impossible it seems to me the exact opposite response that you want but it, it, it sometimes it's kind of natural because if you have got the huge amounts of knowledge and experience and you maybe do want to give everybody the right answers about everything and and show how brilliant you are that is the potential yeah. re- response i think one one thing that i've seen done really well as well in facilitation was just a very very slight switch of word use vocabulary use and instead of saying right everybody what i want you to do next is or language yeah. of that nature yeah which b 
being a bit of an awkward sod myself, I kind of just naturally find that annoying. Are you are you a natural rebel? I am. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I just don't want to be You're told a bit what of a to quiet do. Quiet anarchist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quiet anarchist. Um, I, I just, I just find it irritating. So I just think, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? Yeah. But anyway, I do it. I go along with it, and I even put a smile on my face. But I'm faking it. <laughs> but I just noticed that one facilitator that I worked with once was just brilliant. And all instead of saying that kind of language, which is so common yeah. in facilitation sessions, all she did was she just said, "Let's." That's all. Yeah. Instead of what I want you to do is, she just sort of said, "Right, let's go up here and use the flip chart, or let's just go now and do this." And it just felt like you were going with her as just yeah. as she was just a nice person helping you through. It yeah. didn't feel like you had some bloody dictatorial so and so at the front yeah. <laughs> annoying the crap out of you. Well, that, but I thought it was a really that, small tweak that really made a difference. And I do it now, and it, it really I feel better when I do it. Yeah, it just feel more like you're, you know, you you're working together. And it and that's one of the things that you know it's one of the fundamental keys of being a good leader as well, isn't it? You know, it's a similar a similar discipline that you know yeah. as a good leader you'll you'll work together side by side with your colleagues as opposed to you know sitting at the top and telling them what to do so you know that that feeling of you know we I'm not sure how this is going to go it might not go perfectly let's explore it together that can really help and you know it, we keep talk we keep using this word facilitator as well as opposed to trainer and that, you know, that is a huge thing to to remember when you're doing something that requires a behavioural or mindset shift, that your job is to facilitate that that learning process, that discovery, that ex- exploration, and not be the one standing at the front of the room, giving out all of your amazing, impressive knowledge and trying to wow people with theory and um, stats and whatever else it might be you know, to, to actually create an environment where people are able to safely explore learning that's relevant to them and for it to be meaningful and for them to see how they can apply that into their whole lives, that, you know, that's that's exactly what a facilitator is meant to do as yeah. opposed to training content. You, you know, I, I remember back in the day, we you know, when I worked at O2, we used to, used to have a bit of a, an unofficial saying on our, our team that we're training people, not training content. And that that in itself is a mindset shift. Yeah, it's a really good point as well, isn't it? It's not about yeah. just going through the, the book or whatever. It yeah. is about, yeah, and, and that, that role of facilitator, I think most people listening to this podcast are kind of get that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're preaching to the, to the kind Converted. of, to the converted and, and to the best. We have a very elite audience mm. here, Emma. Well, that's it's, good it's to pretty know. classy. I better lot. step up my uh, yeah, step up my so. performance here then. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I think we kind of I think most people would get that and would and would resist that temptation to do that. And I, and I, you know if you have got loads of knowledge to share, then that's you know get a YouTube channel, get a podcast or something like that, where there yeah. is an op- or blog where there's an opportunity to share, uh, yeah, and build your brand as as somebody who's an expert. I think that's really yeah. valuable stuff to do. But don't just like pour it out in a training room. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and you know, the, um, what I'm not saying is that every work, workshop should be free for, free of theory and stats and whatever, because, you know, there's always going to be people who are reassured by that and you want to have some, you know, good sort of evidence for backing up what you're doing. Yeah, um, that's a good point, but it, yeah. But it certainly shouldn't be just 
all that. Yeah, we don't want to go too far in the other direction where we devoid, we clear out all of that entirely. Yeah. And I think there is a there is a tendency these days to exaggerate and think, oh, people don't like theory, people don't do that. And actually, no, there is a certain amount of solid ground we should be demonstrating we're walking on. We're not just making oh, it yeah. up as we're going along. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I like a bit of theory every now and again. Oh, I you love know, it. If it's, it's you know, it sort of makes you. Sometimes that's a platform for new thinking, isn't it? You know, if you hear a new theory or you 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 read a report or a you know some stats on something that can actually trigger new thinking for you in itself can't it yeah yeah i i, I love a bit of theory myself and in fact if it's absent i'd get a bit anxious because i just kind of think mm. well, where's this coming from yeah i'm not really that convinced unless i can understand that it's got some sort of basis or i can see the obvious practical advantage you know not that yeah. awkward but um <laughs> you mentioned then as well about exploring it themselves and i think that's a really key point about you said yeah. not dictating and you said about uh, giving them the space to explore the stuff Do yeah. you want to just quickly talk through that for a sec um so i suppose it's i'm going to throw some jargon in here now i know people love a bit of that sometimes <laughs> uh, so it's like this whole sort of andragogy versus pedagogy thing it, the difference between adult learning and children's learning so pedagogy being children's learning andragogy being adults learning and the fact that actually we don't change our learning processes, I guess, all that much between being children and adults. But the differences are that as adults, we need to understand what the context is. We need to understand what the impact is. We need to create meaning of some kind. We need to make the connections and understand what this learning is actually going to do for us in our lives or in our roles or whatever it might be. And, that, and as children, we just accept new learning. But the things that are similar are that we like to discover things, that we like to explore, that we like to play. And if we can allow people in a learning environment to do that in a safe way and allow them also to, to be able to make the connections and find the meaning and the value, then that's a very powerful thing. And the other thing about the facilitation process in the you know it allows that to happen is that it also allows people the freedom to find the meaning for themselves rather than you telling them what what it should mean to them and that can quite often I love that about being a facilitator because I often learn in fact probably every single session I do I learn something new from the people that are in that in that workshop because they're allowed to create insights and thinking and you know changes that i've never even thought of yeah and and i think that I, that language you just said then about create creating insights is that what you yeah. said yeah <laughs> sorry is it like one second ago when I forgotten? <laughs> yeah creating insights but i think that's the, that's such an important point because it's so much more powerful if that insight is created by them themselves yes. rather than just being told yeah. and giving them the space to explore to have the conversations and it has to i think be through conversation mostly yeah there, there may be case studies and and, and structures imposed to help those conversations but yeah i i think the needing to articulate it yourself and being open to listening to other people articulating their thoughts is where the knowledge is created yeah and some really magical things can happen in that space when you just when you let go of control as a facilitator and allow people to do that 
you know with whatever structure around it that's that's a you know personally what lights my fire is seeing that happen you yeah know, that's that's a really magical thing to observe that's your inner anarchist coming out now isn't it yeah it is i am an i am a quiet anarchist i think i need to write a book about the quiet anarchist and you'll feature will so i good look out for that yeah okay brilliant <laughs> I love the title. It's a really good title. I it, should, it could be Someone's your autobiography title, now, couldn't they? it? <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's already been done and that's why, you know, it's in my psyche somewhere. <laughs> Do you want me to Google it? Hang on. <laughs> the Quiet Anarchist. The Quiet Anarchist, Richard M. Burridge. From, it's on Amazon. Oh, there you go. Oh. Well, Kafka, The Quiet Anarchist by Ben Norton. Oh, there's loads of it. Oh, well, there you go. It isn't something I've made up then. Hang on. How how long can mankind persist on these present coins? New Year. Oh, I, I can't bother to read that. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's the. That's a really badly news. written blurb there. So oh, I can't bother to read that. <laughs> but I'm afraid the phrase is, the phrase has been used. But I think it's a oh, good wow. phrase. Um, another good so. phrase is androgogy, and people should say that more often. I think. Yes. Oh, it's 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 one of those words that just feels nice to say, isn't it? Androgogy. Yeah. I, I think so. People people misuse pedagogy, I think, it, because andragogy is not widely known or yeah. particularly widely used. And I don't I don't know if it's even a proper word, actually. Who knows? I've written a blog about Google it, so I'm going to well. say it's proper, but, you know, I'm no authority. Andragogy. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, it does actually come up on that. Back. Yes, there you go. That does come I'm not it's just a proper word. The method and practice of teaching adult learners adult education. There, so there you, you go, go, then. Yeah. So let, let, let's end this chat with your wiggle technique. Oh, yes, my wiggle which technique. you told me to ask you about. So I'm going to ask you about your wiggle technique. And I, I can't segue <laughs> this in other than just saying, tell me about your wiggle technique. My wiggle technique. So it's something that I suppose I've just become aware of over the years as a facilitator. And um, it's just a consciousness I've got of if you if somebody's got a belief of some kind or something you know a way of thinking or a habit or whatever it is whatever kind of process they've got i see that almost as a bit of a tightly wound ball of wool let's say and it might be quite knotty but whatever it is it's all kind of compacted in and it's really really kind of kind of solid so as a facilitator i see my role as somehow being able to loosen that ball of wool enough that it creates some space in between the knots and the you know the the yarn itself and that when you've managed to and I suppose this gets into NLP territory so you're talking about reframing and all that kind of stuff so when you've managed to get just a little bit of space then it allows you to to get more of the stuff in there that's really going to be quite powerful to unravel that ball of wool and for it to be knitted into something different so maybe i should be calling this the the wiggly wool technique or something i don't know wiggly um, wool. But I, it's, I like that yeah. <laughs> I, i'm just glad it's not actually an acronym i was expecting an acronym so I'm, I'm quite pleased it's actually not it's actually a conceptual metaphor no it's just something that i've become aware of in my weird little brain um, over the years that I that I've recognized is something that you do as a facilitator and as as we speak I've got my hands clasped together in a to represent the sort of tightly wound ball of wool and as you wiggle them you sort of get space in between 
the fingers and the, you know, in between your palms. And they're the spaces you want to get into as a facilitator. So you have to wiggle it enough in the first place for the to people to go, well, okay, yeah, maybe I'll sort of listen to this. All right, I'll just be a little bit open-minded. I'm not in any way convinced yet, but I'll give you a little bit of room to kind of get some stuff in there. And if you do that enough and powerfully enough and, and you know, they you give them an environment where they can start to open up that thinking a little bit, then you can get in the spaces a lot more effectively and knit something new out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You got the metaphor <laughs> all the way to knitting at the end, which is brilliant. Yeah. So tightly bound, <laughs> bound ball of wool to knitting. Yeah. And you could have a little jumper or a bobble hat or anything at the end of it. Um, <laughs> In terms of actual stuff that you do in a training room, mm. when you say you're trying to loosen the ball of wool to find the spaces, what are, yeah. you, what are you doing there? And then what are you doing to kind of elbow your way into those spaces to try and make them a bit bigger? <laughs> I suppose all the things that we've talked about um, already. So, you know, that authenticity, um, creating a safe environment where they can explore, perhaps giving them some examples of, um, either your own anecdotes or other anecdotes of of people that have been through those transitions or or stories that back that up to give people concepts that aren't too way out there that you know it takes a massive leap to you know give people that staged learning and a bit of a bit at a time to layer it to reinforce it and then when you actually start to get that wiggle space you can give them the responsibility to actually fill those spaces themselves right so it's these same sort of techniques of mm. play give them the safe space the authentic facilitator the the conversations all of that kind of stuff that we've talked about already yeah um and then and adding value you know, to the learning as you as you suggested as well wasn't you mentioned that sorry you're going to say something I, I was just going to say that then you know you've got after the event you've got coaching and you've got um, practice and you've got all of that line manager take up and whatever else is in the framework of that business to support that learning and that you know new knitting of whatever the um, the outcome will be um, so again you know it comes back to that being a full a full uh, embedded process not just a one-time learning event yeah, and again, it's going back to that line manager, manager, the role of the line manager in terms of embedding the learning. And mm. these things where it is not a one-stop shop thing, that's the wrong word. These <laughs> things where it's not like a single step is what I mean to say. It yeah. is a journey yes. of wriggling or wiggling the, the wool into a jumper. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a full journey of stuff and, and you need the manager, you need the coaching, you need the some sort of action plan, you need possibly multiple occasions, touch points where you are having some kind of safe space and formalised approach yes. where discussions happen and the real world just doesn't get in the way. You know, th there is that time out to have these social spaces, these time for play. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a time sensitive thing sometimes. So you might wiggle the wall so there's a bit of space, but unless somebody continues to, you know, to use the momentum of that, then it's just going to go right back to where it was before. Um, so, yeah, it does have to, you know, you have to make sure that that momentum is is kept going. And, and like you say, there's touch points and and opportunities for that in lots and lots of different ways.
Well, thanks very much for this, Emma. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank and you. I think the what you started off by saying about how every kind of really good L&D intervention needs to at least be thinking about what is the, oh God, I'm going to try and say it, mindset shift. <laughs> Yay! Got it. Got it. Well what done. is the mindset shift that we're looking for here? <laughs> However small it might be, even in my example of the uh, of printing the report however small that might be there's still quite likely some kind of mindset shift <laughs> lost it again uh, thing going on there uh, not just in those very obvious examples where it's a big change management project or asking someone to step into a leadership role yeah there are even in the smaller stuff there's that mindset shift stuff going on Absolutely. mindset shift stuff that's even harder to say <laughs> but thanks very much emma it's been a real pleasure uh, I've really Thank enjoyed you, the conversation and it really just shows how that when you're thinking through designing these sessions, you really have to have kind of thought through how you're going to do all these things mm. to allow the time and the space for them and to make sure that they're done properly. Yes, definitely. I fully agree. Great. Well, we're going to talk more about this. I hope, Emma, I hope you'll come back yes. on this podcast and we will chat more because we're in full agreement on this stuff and it's, it, it's, it's, we could all both go on for hours about it. So yeah. I thought I was going to have to, you know, convince you of something. No, so, you know, because no, because no. uh, of your quiet anarchist no, we're uh, like-minded on tendency. This one, <laughs> Good. <laughs> but I'm, but I am going to stop it there because I keep getting told that these podcasts are too long. Really? Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I don't agree, but there you go. <laughs> so thanks very much, Emma. Thank you very much. Bye.